In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, we started the Apostles' Fast, and as we know, the Apostles' Fast is a period of time after the Pentecost until the Feast of the Apostles. The Feast of the Apostles is always on July 12th, uh, so whereas the Pentecost Feast floats around. Um, it's depending on when the resurrection is. So, wherever the, the resurrection happens to be that year, 50 days after that is the Pentecost, and the Apostles' Fast starts from after the Pentecost until July 12th. And of course, we know in the scriptures that after the Feast of the Pentecost, after the, the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles as tongues of fire, the apostles went out and they began to preach and establish the church. So that's why a lot of the readings of the church and a lot of the emphasis on the church during this period of time has to do with evangelism um, and preaching and, and, and establishing the church and the salvation of the world and so on. So I wanted to speak about um, this topic, which I call the passive evangelism. Um, I like to talk about evangelism as two different two different types. Um, I refer to it as the active evangelism and the passive evangelism. Active evangelism is what you would imagine typically evangelism to be, where you go out and you preach, where you, you, you do some something active to try to bring people. You teach about the word of God. You talk to people about the church. You invite people to come to the church. All of these things um, are active evangelism. But there's also another category of evangelism, which I call passive evangelism, which is evangelism simply by the fact of who we are. Evangelism just according to who, who we are and how people perceive us um, and things that we do in the church that will attract people to the church without actively having to go out and do anything. Okay, And I think this type of evangelism is also very important because you know historically in the Coptic church, um, there have been a lot of ethnic and cultural barriers to people coming to the church. Like a clear one would be language, for instance. If if the church, if the people spoke Arabic in the church, then that definitely is going to prevent a lot of people who are English speaking from coming to the church and feeling like the church is for them and that the, the church is catering to their needs. So, for instance, language is one of the characteristics of passive evangelism. Well, how are we? Um, how how are we? Uh, making the language of the church in such a way to attract people, right? This is an example. So I want to speak a little bit about this topic, um, specifically 20 points all about passive evangelism that we as the church need to be aware of and consider to see how can we be successful in the mission of evangelism, uh, again, in this passive way, okay? I don't have necessarily an answer to all of these 20 points, but it's just good to bring them up and mention them and talk about them because there are things that are important that matter that, that we should all be um, aware of. The first one um, has to do with relationships. Okay, um, How does the culture around us see relationships as compared to the biblical uh, orthodox view of relationships? Right. So there's a disconnect there. Like in the church we say, um, you know, dating is for the purpose of marriage, and you marry one person, and you stay married to them, um, and, and, and the goal of the relationship is to find the person who you want to marry, right? That's the reason that people have, you know, go on dates and date and so on, is for that purpose. Not simply to just have fun or to jo enjoy each other's time and whatnot with no commitment, right? This is a big difference between what we as the church preach and what we say is important, um, and the biblical worldview of relationships versus the, the world's way of relationships. And when you have someone coming into the church who's coming from a worldly 
mindset, right? How is it that they're going to come and learn about what is it that the church is teaching? How is it that Christ wanted these marriage relationships to go? Actually, in the book of Malachi, um, when God is speaking about the union between the man and the woman, he says that he makes them one. And why does he make them one? Because he wants godly offspring. This is what he says. This is the reason that he said that he wants the man and the woman in marriage to be one is because he wants godly offspring, which means what? Which means that a stable marriage, stable home is the best place to raise children, right? And so one of the reasons why we have our certain view of marriage and family, you know, nowadays is like families come in all kinds of ways, right? Um, and, 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 but when we, we teach like what did God intend for family to look like, right? Um, he, he intended it to be, to be a man and a woman living with children, right? And, and the, 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 the parents are raising those children. So the church has a certain perspective on these relationships, um, whereas maybe the world has ever increasingly different and, and, and deviant view from this, diverging view from this. Um, this is considered to be traditional now, right? Traditional, maybe not modern. Right, the modern idea of relationships in our modern age in the world is drastically different than this um, in so many ways. But we, as the church, are trying to promote the biblical principles and understand why did God t teach these things. So that's one element. Like when we're talking about passive evangelism, how do we teach? How do we present the biblical worldview of relationships and marriage in a godly way, such that the people who are coming to the church can learn and understand and adopt such a view? even though maybe they came from a very different view. Kind of related to this is the idea of divorce. You know, it used to be the case, actually, maybe many people don't realize this, that in the 70s, before the 70s, um, you couldn't just get a divorce if you wanted a divorce. The idea of no-fault divorce, meaning that someone could get a divorce without any reason, like they just don't want to live together, don't want to be married anymore, it actually was illegal to get that. You couldn't. California actually was the very first state to permit no-fault divorce, and interestingly, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California at the time. Um, you know, uh, and then soon after that, all of the other states began to adopt the same idea. So even you know the the biblical worldview as present in the the government and the legal system uh, was that hey, divorce is bad. Uh, we don't want people to get divorced because again, the state has an interest in stable families. Because when you have stable families, you have better outcomes for children. You have less people in need of welfare, less people in poverty, less people struggling with all kinds of things. So because it was seen that a stable family is important. So divorce is something that is not desirable, okay? So of course in, in the Christian worldview, it actually is one of the few things that it says in the Bible that God hates. It says God hates divorce. He hates it, right? Because it destroys the family, which God intended to be the place for the, the, the children to grow. Now, this doesn't mean that God hates the people who divorced, right? It's not the same thing. It means that God doesn't want this for people, right? This is painful and is difficult, and it's not the intention of God. He doesn't want it, right? So again, from the church perspective, the, the percentage of people who are divorced 
And you can lump into this group the category of people who never even get married but are just living together indefinitely and then break up. Because now, nowadays, so many people don't even get married. They just live together. Um, the idea of separation and breaking apart of what you know God has brought together, the idea that we see that marriage relationships are just kind of like a temporary thing. I'm in them as long as I feel like I'm benefiting from it or I gain something or if I enjoy it. But the moment that I don't or the moment that I feel like I would be happier with another person or elsewhere, then I can choose to break apart this union, right? But this is why when Christ said about marriage, he says, what God has brought together, let man not separate. Meaning the union is not a union of, uh, that's just based on a, a decision that's been made by the two people. Yes, obviously there's a decision there. But when they come together in a sacramental union, it is the Holy Spirit that binds them together in a mystical way, in this mysterious way, that cannot be separated. This is why in the church, if there were a couple who is married, and and they choose to get a civil divorce the church doesn't consider them to be divorced right the church considers them still to be married until the church grants permission for one or the other to remarry right according to the conditions of you know what is the reason that the divorce happened so the idea that the that the holy spirit binds together it's not something that's easily loosed it's not something that can be easily dismissed okay so again the worldly perspective on this is relationships are cheap Right, relationships come and go. I can have one one day. I can end it the next day. I can go from person to person, and so on. Whereas, whereas the church perspective is no. The, the relationships are binding. Like once you enter into one, right, this is not something that is easy to just cancel. Another, uh, you know, another thing that many many people deal with in the world and and in the church as well is abuse. Various kinds of abuse. The, this types of abuse that cause long term harm and pain. Uh, on for, for people and then when they come to the church they come not only with the mindset okay like I'm trying to find the truth and I want to uh, you know like I'm, 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 I'm exploring what is the truth and I want to, 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 to learn about what the orthodox view of truth is and if I accept it I be baptized and become a believer I become an orthodox Christian but people don't just come without baggage they come with baggage they come with pain and brokenness right in various ways and it's part of the role of the church to address this you know when the lord jesus christ sent his 70 disciples 70 apostles two by two to go and to to preach he one of the things he told them to do was to heal the sick he didn't just say preach and just that's it he said meet the needs of the people what is it that the people need they're sick heal the sick and once you've healed the sickness then you are then they are willing to hear, hear and listen to the preaching you know, if you go to someone who's living below the poverty line and, and suffering from all kinds of family problems and personal problems, and then you go to them and you want to give them a Bible study, it's like, okay, you know, like, it's good, right? But are they able to listen, right? Their focus is going to be so much on their pain. And if they see that Christ is the healer, right, Christ is the one who can heal them from the pain, and, and we are not coming to teach theology. We're coming to show you that the Christ is the healer and he is the one who is able to, 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 to restore what has been broken, right? So a big part of being successful in evangelism, I feel, is to have services in the church to help counsel people who are coming from the outside that are in need of counseling, Christian counseling, because many, many people need this. And there are people who come to the church, are baptized in the church, but they end up leaving because the weight and the burden of their personal problems is so heavy that 
they're not fruitful, right? They're not fruitful in the church. So again, to be successful evangelistically, we need to have some way of expressing to them the love of God to them as individuals through counseling, through therapy, through ways where they can see like God doesn't just care about their mind to believe in him, but he cares about their whole person. So this is definitely something. Um, another very, very important one is sexuality. And actually this is like month to month. The perversion of the views of society about sexuality has just become unbelievable. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that, that you have just a man marrying a woman and that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Like that used to be something taken for granted. That, that, that used to be something that no one would even have considered. There would be alternatives to this, right? As being mainstream, you know, as being a mainstream view that is promoted and, and, and you know, celebrated, right? Whereas now, of course, it's very different, right? Everything goes. And again, the reason that in the church, like as Christians, we hold on to a certain model of how we view sexuality is not just because we have a certain opinion about it and that's the opinion we're used to and it's a traditional opinion and we hold on to it because that's what we believe, but it's because God is the creator. We see God as the creator and he created us to be a certain way. And, and from the very beginning, it says he made them male and female, right? And Adam and Eve are the ones that are in union together. Right? So from the very beginning, from the first few chapters of Genesis, we see that God created sexuality a certain way, and he expected those people of the different genders to interact with each other in a certain way, and only that way. So the orthodox worldview has nothing to do with what we prefer or what makes sense to us. No, it has to do with God is the creator of sexuality. And he is the one who told us that this is how it is to be used. And anything outside of the bounds of it is destructive, right? Is destructive. And we see that played out in people who try to go beyond the bounds and, and, and kind of the, 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 the struggles that they face. But again, the idea that when people look to the church, they say, well, you guys are very old school. Like you're very, like this is an outdated model and view of sexuality. Um, how is it that you want us to be part of this and to accept this, right? Again, it's another challenge. Right? It's a challenge of uh, if we want to evangelize, how do we explain and how do we do so in a loving way like to the people, like this is what we believe and this is why we believe. Right, So that's very important. <coughs> another, uh, you know, another point I call the hyper-rational mindset. The hyper-rational mindset is a person who refuses to accept anything beyond... The, 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 the rational, meaning the idea of the existence of God, something that is immaterial, beyond the realm of the senses, is something that is completely rejected, right? Completely rejected. How is it that I could accept something that cannot be touched or observed or experimented on and so on, okay? The, the, again, and this is a big issue because if, if we're telling people come and believe in God and come and join the church, we're asking them to accept something that cannot be directly experimented on, right? Because the very nature of religion is something that is beyond the world. It is beyond the physical world. So someone who cannot comprehend the existence of anything beyond the physical world will have a very hard time accepting the existence of God or accepting what it is that we are teaching, right? Um, of course, there are many arguments like to, to, to do this, and we go into the topic of apologetics and so on, which I'm not going to get into, but just the realization or the understanding that there is a large number of people who, who, who have this view and reject the very idea of anything beyond the physical world, 
right? So we as the church have to be able to deal with that. How do we address these people? How do we talk to them? How do we convince them, right? That, that no, actually the physical world doesn't explain everything. There are things beyond our understanding that cannot be explained by anything in the physical world. And you have to go beyond the physical world to be able to understand, right? Um, there's kind of something different than that because not everyone is hyper-rational. There is the idea of the tolerance and postmodernism. Postmodernism is is a rejection of modernism. Modernism is 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 kind of like the hyper-rational. Modernism is saying there is one truth. Okay, the truth is a material truth, and we try to discover what the truth is. Like for instance, the pursuit of science, I would say, is modernist. Okay, modernist. Postmodernist is saying, you know what? We reject the idea that there is one truth because maybe that one truth that exists is something that I don't really. I don't really like, right? I, I want there to be, I want the truth to be what makes me feel good. So postmodernism, as a rejection of modernism, a reaction to modernism, is essentially saying that, no, there isn't just one truth. I have a truth, you have a truth, everybody has a truth, and we tolerate each other's truths, we accept each other's truths, and even though these truths contradict one another, that's okay. We're not caring so much about consistency, right? Or coherence. We care more about everybody feeling comfortable with what they believe. So if you've ever seen like the bumper sticker that says coexist, you ever seen that coexist bumper sticker where every letter of that represents a different religion, the coexist mentality is postmodernist, saying, you know what, all these different religions, why can't we just get along? Why can't we just all agree that maybe we're all right? You know, you're, you're comfortable with Christianity, you're comfortable with Buddhism, you're comfortable with Hinduism, you're comfortable with Islam, you're comfortable with Judaism. It's fine. Everybody is equally good, right? And we don't have to try to prove to one another who is the right one because there is no concept of being right, right? This is because religion and the mindset of the postmodernist is no longer about an absolute truth that we try to discover. Religion now has been kind of demoted down to a way of life that makes me feel fulfilled and satisfied in my life. So if the Buddhist way of life makes me feel comfortable and satisfied, then Buddhism is true for me, right? If Christianity is what makes me feel comfortable, then Christianity is true for me, okay? But you can't, what, argue or criticize the other. You can't talk about having exclusive truth for yourself. You talk about, this is my truth, okay? So again, with many people having this type of view, right, uh, how do we as the church address it? Because in the church, in Christianity, actually in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all three of these religions rely on the fact that we exist, that we believe in an absolute truth. Like there is a God. There's not two gods. There's not three gods. There's not ten gods. There's a God. And, and that God is historically, we, we, we understand him through the lens of the scripture, right? whether it be the Christian scripture or the Judaic scripture or even the Quran for the Muslims, they believe that this is the God that exists, that's real. And so when we believe in a God who is real, we submit our will to him, we worship him, right? Because we believe he is a real, a real person, a real God. As opposed to the postmodernist view where it's like, well, it makes me feel comfortable to believe in such a God and so I will believe in him. You are comfortable believing in a different God, that's fine. Your truth is just as valid as mine. So it, it kind of demotes the idea of religion from being about truth to being about feelings. What is it that I feel? Mysticism and spirituality, or we could call this self-directed religion. 
There are some people who, who, who yearn for some kind of spirituality, that feel like the modernist view of just the material world is the only thing, is cold and doesn't really describe the reality of life, that there, there, there has to be more beyond this world, okay? But how is it they approach this idea of spirituality? It is self-directed. This is where we see religions like Buddhis Buddhism, for instance. Buddhism is very self-directed, meaning I choose to practice on my own. I choose to do what, 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 what benefits me on my own. There is no church. There is no authority in the church that's telling me how I should live or what I should do. It's just me as an individual. This is, this is what I should do. So this is very different than the church, right? Because in the, in the church, when, when you come to the church, you are part of a body, a body of Christ, right? And as a member of that body, we are subject to the authority of that body. We are, we are subject to the authority that God has given to the church in order for us to thrive and grow spiritually. So there requires a submission, right? There requires a idea that it is not just my own will that will determine my actions and my life, but I'm submitting my will to the will of another. Again, this is something we find in the world. For us to be successful in evangelism, we need to um, consider that. Individualism is another thing. Um, thank you. Individualism. Especially in the West. Individualism is very, very prominent, right? Everyone wants to be self-made, right? The idea of being self-made, you're a self-made millionaire, self-made billionaire, self-made. There's a great honor in saying that we are self-made, meaning I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to help me. I was able to do it by myself, and I want the glory for myself because I was successful and able to, to in, in being able to do something that is amazing, that is great, that is beyond, right? So, again, in the church, this is not how we see things, right? We are, we are not about the individuals. Yes, each of us is saved individually. Yes, each of us has an individual relationship with God. But in the church, we care more about the whole. And even in the scriptures, it says, esteem others better than yourself, right? We are, we are trying to deal with one another in humility, to, sub to submit to one another, to make ourselves low so that others will be exalted. This is the service of the washing of the feet, just as the Lord Jesus Christ washed the feet of the apostles, even though he is God, and he submitted to the cross, even though he is God, he is not seeking glory for himself, right? And this is a very different mindset from the world. The world, everyone seeks glory for themselves. Everyone wants to get ahead regardless of the cost, no matter who they have to step on to get there, right? This is a very different mindset than in the church. Democracy, of course, in the West, democracy is seen as the best way to achieve a goal or to make a decision is to get everybody's opinion, right? And we vote. Whereas in the church, there's not so much voting, right? Like it's more about, it has been decided. <laughs> this is what is going to happen based on the authority of the, 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 the clergy, the, the pope, the bishop, the synod, right? They make decisions that then are, um, that apply to everyone. And again, the reason is, is because God has given authority to the clerical ranks in order to, uh, administer the church in order for the for the sake of the salvation of the people so for instance when the church says uh we're going to have certain fasts like you know we're in the apostles fast now maybe the least fasted fast of all the fasts they say actually about the apostles fast that is the fast of abuna and his wife 
This is what they say about the Apostles' Fast. Um, why is there the Apostles' Fast? Well, the church decided that we should have an Apostles' Fast and that this is going to be spiritually beneficial for the people. They could have decided a different fast. They could have decided that it's shorter, that it's longer, that it's whatever, right? How did they come up with this? It doesn't even matter. You know, like parents, one household might say that the bedtime for their kids is 9 p.m. Another household would say it's 10 p.m. Both parents have the best interests of their kids in mind, but they make different decisions, and that's fine, right? The idea, though, is that the authority lies with who? With the parent, meaning what the parent says, this is what should be abided by, right? It is not a democracy in our households, is it? When we ask our kids to vote on what their bedtime should be, that would be chaos. And the same is true in the church. But when you have people coming from the outside, like for instance, many Protestant churches, they are democratic, we call them congregational. Congregational meaning, meaning when they wanna make a decision for the church as a whole, it's not like there's a bishop that comes and says, this is what you're gonna do. No, they vote, they vote, or like we decided. Like actually the church that we were renting before we came here uh, was a Lutheran church, and they voted, their congregation voted whether to accept homosexuality as a sin or not. Like that, even that was a vote, right? So, so everything is voted, right? And when you have a mindset of democracy, which I'm not against democracy in and of itself, but it can't be applied to everything. Um, when you have that mindset, okay, uh, and then you come to the church and you find, well, the things are not running democratically in the church, right? That can be a stumbling block for some people. How do we address that? Again, I don't have answers to these things. I'm just telling you what <laughs> I'm telling you what exists. Wealth and prosperity. Many people um, believe that wealth is the goal in life. Success is the goal in life, and most of their effort and time and energy are spent to achieve wealth. And even among Christians who believe in what we call the prosperity gospel that if a person is a believer of God and, and, and lives their life according to God's command, that God will grant them wealth, and that will be the reward that they receive is wealth. Okay, So when you have people who come to the church where the, the, the primary goal is to be wealthy and to be successful in the world, and then you tell them, oh, but actually, no, that's, that's not the goal at all. That's a, that's a, stark, that's a completely different change of perspe perspective and worldview to say that that is not my goal in life. My goal in life is not to be successful. Actually, in the end, everything's going to be taken from you. It doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It's going to be taken from you. So spend your life doing something that is has eternal value, you know, eternal wealth, not temporary wealth. And this, again, is a, is a change of mindset. You know, there are people who come to the church, um, but the church is not the center of their life. It is just something that they do. One of the many activities that they do in the week, right, when the primary goal, the primary focus of their life is to be wealthy, right? And they'll put all their, they'll, they'll sacrifice everything for it, even their own families, even their health, whatever it might be, because they want this, right? So again, it's a big challenge when you have people coming to the church with this mindset to teach them that this is not actually the goal, right? Entitlement, okay? People coming with a sense of entitlement, especially in the West. We are entitled to everything. You know, when our coffee is cold, we get upset and we make a scene and, and we want our money back. You know, like we, when, when, when the smallest thing doesn't go according to our expectations, we feel entitled to reparations, right? You know, think about how things were, let's say, in biblical times. 
you know, when when things didn't go the way the way that people wanted, who did they who do they go to? Who do they seek reparations from? Who did they get justice from? You just had to accept that that's the way it was. You know, I've heard many many stories. Even nowadays, people living in Egypt, for instance, you don't sue people whenever people harm you. You just figure it out. Like you just have to swallow it. You know, like this person stole from me. This person harmed me. Of course, there are some some people that some things that you would sue but not anywhere to the level that we do here, right? Um, because the idea that, you know, you are entitled to your rights is something that's very unique to the West, right? That you are entitled to your rights. And so because we have that mentality that we are entitled to our certain rights, then, then sometimes that carries over to our entitlement in the eyes of God. Like, like what am I entitled to? I'm entitled I mean, God, I want, I want. This is not fair what you're doing to me. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, right? And we use that word deserve. So again, this is a mentality. And when we come to God, right, who is the master, who is the pantocrator, whom we are not entitled to anything, actually, it, it, before him, we are so humbled, right? We are so humbled that we come to him not saying, I am entitled to you to do something. It's like, I can't, like, I, I I, 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 fath I cannot fathom to understand the depth of your mercy that you would even accept me to yourself after I have sinned against you and betrayed you as I have, right? So the mentality with God is the complete opposite. I don't deserve anything. Actually, I'm, I'm humbled that you would even accept me as your son or as, a, as your daughter, right? Very different mentality than this. Volunteerism, which is something good in the West. Um, a lot of people want to be part of service. They want to do good. They want to participate in something. Something definitely that we can leverage in the church. When even someone coming in, still a catechumen, we give them opportunities to serve in whatever capacity. They want to help. They want to do something good. Language, as I mentioned before. Um, if we want the church to be open to a certain group of people, right, then we make the language of the church to be their language. Right. That's 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 why actually in our church we only pray in English. We don't even have Coptic. Uh, organization is another important one. In the West, people are super organized. They expect a certain level of organization in everything they do. In the supermarket, in the office, in 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 the most trivial thing, you expect everything to run smoothly, right? So if they come to the church, and the church is not running smoothly and we don't start on time, and we don't end on time, and we say we're going to do things, and we don't do them, and whatnot, it, it makes people lose faith in the church as an organization, as a structure, right? And it gives a bad impression about who we are as the church, right? So even in the church, we, we, we need to be organized. The deacons need to be organized. The services need to be organized. Everything we do should be organized because that is attractive. It is attractive simply to be organized, even though you haven't done anything, like you haven't gone out and preached, just the mere fact that you are organized attracts people to you, right? So again, it's passive. It's passive evangelism. Media, right? Media is very important. Um, the church should leverage the media as much as we can. I mean, thank God nowadays there's more and more of this. Like there's YouTube channels and there's, you know, documentaries and videos and books and all kinds of things. Um, because that is the world we live in. You know, actually, like they say, like the attention span of what a Gen Z person is eight seconds. Um, and they leverage that in, in how long it takes. If you notice, like how long it takes for advertisements to appear on YouTube. Right. They say it, it, the or how long the videos are like eight seconds. You have eight seconds to, to get a person. And if you if you can't get them in eight seconds, then you've lost them. Right. The Gen Z. 
So, so again, like taking this into account, like we can fight it all we want. Like we can fight it. We can say it's wrong. We say we need to increase our attention span. Great, yes. Okay, but the fact is that if this is the situation we're in, and if we want to win people, and we want people to understand, we want to attract them to the truth, then you've got eight seconds to do it. You don't have hundred page book. They can say, hey, read this book. No, they're not gonna read the book. They're gonna watch you for eight seconds, right? What can you tell them in eight seconds that is gonna get them? That's gonna get them more interested. So then maybe they will read a book later, but the first, the first initial interaction you have with them, you have eight seconds. Secularization, meaning it used to be the case that Christianity was much more integrated with society, right? Um, even even f when, like, uh, the majority of the people themselves were not necessarily raised Christian, but they had a Christian worldview. For instance, like, you might have people who are atheists, but they still practice the idea that, okay, a family is a man and a woman married together with kids. Like, like even though they are not Christians per se, but they grew up with that perception and that worldview, and that's how it was. We're no longer there. All right, we're no longer there. So... Uh, the complete removal of Christianity from society is where we are. And that Christianity is demonized. That anything that resembles Christianity is demonized and, and seen as being oppressive, seen as being hateful, right? So we have a lot to do to overcome that. That you don't just go to someone who is in the world and you talk to them Christianity starting from a neutral place, but they actually already hate you before you even open your mouth before you even talk to them, right? That they are, we are already hated, right? Because they have made so many assumptions about who we are before we even open our mouth. And this is why the passive evangelism is so important because if they see us as being um, like primarily, like our goal is love, our goal is, is to serve and to help. Yes, we, we preach things that maybe they find offensive, that's true, um, but, but they see us as being a force of good in the world. They see us as being a force of love in the world. And if they saw us that way, it would be much easier for us to be able to get this message across to them because Christianity has now been demonized in, in the world. Transparency is something else that's important. Transparency. You know, whenever there, whenever there are things that are hidden, um, even if they're being hidden for good reason, people assume that there is deception. You know, like let's say there is some kind of a scandal that happens, God forbid. And and that scandal, it's like we we try to hide it. We we pretend that it doesn't exist because we feel like it's gonna ruin our reputation. Okay? I'm talking about like the church as a whole. Um if we do that, then there are gonna be people who mistrust and gonna turn this situation into an opportunity to demonize the church and say, look, these people, they just hide and they're 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 hypocrites and this and this and that and that and this. Right, because in the West, in the West, transparency is um, expected. Right, maybe not so much in the Middle East. In the Middle East, people understand there's going to be things that are secret. In the West, everyone wants to know everything. Okay, I'm not saying that the answer is to tell everything, but at least we should keep it in mind. Okay, that transparency is important. People want to know how things are working. If there's a problem, they want to know about the problem. They don't want to just say, it's okay, it's okay, everything will be fine. You know, in Egypt, some, a patient could have cancer, and they don't even, the doctor doesn't even tell him that he has cancer. He tells him everything's fine. Why? Because he don't, well, doesn't want to hurt his feelings. They tell his family that he has cancer, but they don't tell him. 
right? That's the that's the Middle Eastern mentality, right? Is <laughs> so so imagine you carry that forward to other things, right? No, if there's a problem, we need to talk about it. Like we need to be open and honest and, and talk about it. Another thing is privacy, the expectation of privacy, right? Um, you know, I, I remember when I was a Sunday school servant a long time ago, one of the servants that I used to serve with, whenever we would go visit our kids um, in their homes, he would ask to go see their rooms because he wanted to see what they had, right? Which, again, maybe <laughs> maybe his, 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 his reasoning for it was good. If they had something that they shouldn't have, he wanted to have a conversation with them about it. <laughs> but there is a way and there is a different way, right? Like, there is an expectation of privacy. There is an expectation of... We are not going to be intrusive. Yes, maybe you're doing something that shouldn't be done, okay? But I'm not going to force myself into your life and, and, and so, that, so that I can discover it, right? So we can discover it. It's something, that, um, it's something that to come from you. Like over time, if you feel convicted that there's something wrong, you should, it should come from you. Um, anthropocentric theology, what does this mean? This means that our belief in the church is this anthropocentric is 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 what like let's say many protestant churches are what is it it means that it is man centered man centered meaning the the people are like the customers how can we please them how can we make everything about the church centered around man right to please them to give them what they want right when when you know if they don't like that we talk about certain topics in the sermons, we won't talk about those topics. If the church is too long, we'll shorten it for them. If, you know, everything is about pleasing the people, okay, as opposed to in the Orthodox Church, we call it theocentric theology. Theocentric meaning God-centered. Everything we do is about God. Even the way, like, for instance, in, the, in our church, we all face the East. Even the priest faces the East. The priest doesn't face the people, right? He's not here to cater to the people. It's like we are all worshiping God together, right? The Catholic Church actually used to do this. They used to all face the East, worshiping God. But then in 1969, they made a change and made the priest face the people. Because what? It made them feel more like they're a congregation, right? Like he's facing them, like he's talking to them, okay? So this is, again, another difference. The last point I want to mention is the Protestant influence. Obviously, in the West, the majority Christian denomination is Protestantism. And a lot of the Protestant influence is easily infiltrates the orthodox faith especially some people don't even know like is this protestant is this orthodox right um so that's definitely a big one that you know we we have to be careful about um maintaining our orthodox identity even while we are surrounded by non-orthodox whether it be secular or whether it be um protestant okay i know i went kind of fast there's a lot to cover um but this is just a few points that for us to keep in mind as we are considering what are the challenges that the church faces bringing people uh, into the church? Okay. And glory be to God forever. Amen. You can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O Lord, during this period of the Apostles' fast that you help us to think about how we can spread the word 
to other people and how we can share your love with the world so that they can come and be saved. Help us to be a good witness, O Lord, just as you were when you were on the earth and how you taught the apostles to go and to preach and to heal the sick and to bring those, O Lord, who are far away into your house. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hears as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the community, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.